Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater. I haven't been here for a couple episodes. I'm happy to be back. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth McNulty, Liz Lenevy, and Amy Gunn. And as we teed up in last episode, we have been out of the office trying cases now that the COVID logjam has hit our office. I think it would be accurate to say we've at least had one to two trial teams maybe some months, three trial teams in trial every month of 2022. And probably starting last fall, actually, that we have just tried cases back to back. So they've really been piling up. But the last case that Amy and I tried together was a two-week birth injury case. And actually, if you go back to our most recent episode from last week, you will hear about Liz and Amy's medical malpractice case that they tried in St. Louis County. And Amy took a brief two-week hiatus. It was a full two-week. Full two weeks off between trying a med mal case in front of this particular judge in St. Louis County, and then got right back in his courtroom in my case, which was a two-week birth injury case. That case obviously has a lot of parameters to it that we don't find in every case. We're representing a child through their parents, obviously. And just quite frankly, the length and the amount of work involved in putting on a birth injury case is just a really large endeavor. So I had worked up this case for, I guess, about two and a half years, three years by the time we tried it. And there were two defendants as we worked up the case, and they each had their own slate of experts, as did we. So there was, I think, about 17 experts in the case total between all three parties. And you worked yourself silly on this case. Yeah, I did. And quite frankly, on this case, I'd worked up a couple birth injury cases, but not tried any of my own yet. I love working on those types of cases. So I was very happy to have the opportunity to try one of them, win, lose, or draw. So I would have tried the case again, and that was the right thing to do for the client. We went through two weeks, but we had a three-day weekend in between, which was tough. I don't recommend it. I called it a trial vacation. Like, don't take three days off in the middle of a trial. It was agonizing. But Amy, jumping into this case at the very end, Amy, you had to digest a lot. Because I had worked on the case by myself. You know, often when you're trying cases with attorneys at the end, you can kind of bring them in, you know, maybe 75% of the way through the case. And, you know, they pick up a deposition or two. But because of the schedule in this case, we were actually finishing deposing the defense experts right before trial. And Amy did pick up a deposition, but it was like six days before trial. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And this case... It was a shoulder dystocia case, and those cases are hard to win, I would say. And it is in part because of an intentional push of the obstetric community and one of their boards, ACOG, that have 
gotten together and put together literature that talks about shoulder dystocia being unpredictable, unpreventable, can't figure it out. And of course, residents and doctors train for this situation because it does happen in labor and delivery where a baby's shoulder gets stuck behind the mom's pelvis. It's an emergency because the baby is losing oxygen and blood flow to their brain while they're stuck. And doctors train exactly how to manage and handle this situation. But what we find is always the defense theory in these cases is that, you know, there's nothing that the doctor could have done to predict it because it happens with or without risk factors. Okay. Once the doctor gets there, you know, they did everything they could and it basically is anything that they did to get the baby out alive is adequate. And the cases that these experts on the defense side will agree are cases that show that the doctor must have done something negligent are literally when the baby is decapitated. Right. And that sounds so terrible. But like, that's the extreme that they're like, sure, if those are the facts, then I know that the doctor pulled too hard on the head. But absent that, everything's okay. Nothing to see here. But what we had is an extremely long labor of mom. She had a lot of risk factors, some that were basically missed and could have been known by the doctor. The baby was near 11 pounds and the doctor and the other staff had estimated that the baby would be eight pounds. So you had a mom with her third time baby who had delivered two other eight pounds, whatever ounces babies. And this baby was basically just not progressing through labor. I mean, she's in labor for, you know, over 30 hours. She's not progressing. They're just kind of letting her coast and thinking everything's fine. And the whole idea is that if this baby was also eight pounds, then, you know, third time mom, their pelvis has been tested. It should be moving much more quickly. You got to look at it and you got to decide what's different here. What am I missing? And that was really our liability expert's opinion. But so here's my favorite fact of the case. One of the nurses who was there at (laughs) delivery, when this baby got stuck, there's a lot of evidence that the doctor basically started panicking. It was very believable, I would say, because his own demeanor and on the stand, he just didn't know his back from his front and didn't know which way was up and which way was down. He was kind of a bumbling He was a terrible guy. witness. He was. He was a terrible, terrible witness on the so stand. But so terrible that it was almost sad and you almost felt sorry for him. Yeah. And I kind of anticipated that. I crossed him and I was like, man, is that going to work for him? And he stepped in it a couple times and I went after him a little bit when he was trying to like say certain things that were untrue in the records. Like he just didn't know the records either. When one of the nurses reported, you know, I took her deposition and she reported what the doctor said when the baby got stuck. And then like literally my last question in the deposition was, is there anything else that we haven't talked about? that you remember him saying. And you kind of see her like shift nervously in her seat and you can see her, the wheels turning in her head and she's like, I'm just gonna tell the truth. And she admits that he is shouting the F word 
while he's saying it's not coming. So, I mean, the scene that she is painting is just chaos. And the whole idea is that they're saying that this doctor, you know, was gently handling the head. Gentle. Gentle. Traction. Just gentle while shouting the F word. I'm not sure I've done anything gentle while, <laughs> while <laughs> shouting the F word in front of a bunch of other people in a professional setting. But I don't think I will ever have another opportunity in court to put the F word on the record oh, so yes. many times yes. <laughs> because when it was important, we emphasized it. Should I say um, it again? Yes, say it again. Yes, I should probably say it again in close. <laughs> but, you know, that's interesting evidence, too. Like we even like in opening, I just said, you know, he used expletives and I think I said he cursed or cussed because I'm from Missouri um, <laughs> <laughs> and our experts said he used expletives. So the first time they they heard the F word was from the nurse in her deposition. And it was a video deposition, but taking a depo is one thing, but then seeing it cut together, her testimony was very poignant on the issues. And you could really read how she was uncomfortable with like what went down. Yeah. You knew she was telling the truth. Yeah. And she wasn't surprised that she was getting deposed in the case. But the lesson so. on that is in the deposition of a fact witness like that without saying, is there anything else that you remember about the situation? Is there anything else that you remember hearing so-and-so say or anybody saying? Because you would never have gotten that testimony because she didn't want to say it. You could tell she just didn't want to go there. She'd rather not be that involved. She knew what it meant for the case. But when you put it to her one more time, she did the right thing. But if you hadn't asked again, she wouldn't have said it. Mm -hmm. So that's the lesson I learned from that is never end a deposition of a fact witness without staring them in the face one more time and saying, is there anything else you want to tell me? The hospital was in the case up until the time of trial. We ended up letting them out and just tried the case against the doctor. And that, for strategic reasons, was the right thing to do, too. And the other nurse that was there, there were two main nurses. You could tell she was like, you'll have to ask him. You'll have to ask him. So you could tell she wasn't giving the whole story and basically saying, I'm not sure if I'm willing to say that, but, you know, he's got more to report. So anyway, as we went through this trial, we knew it was going to be a long haul. Amy picked the jury. And that was really interesting, too, because there was a labor and delivery nurse in the very back of the panel that, Amy, you spent a lot of time talking with her and really kind of setting up the liability in the case. So oftentimes, as you know, and as we've talked about, on picking a jury, one of the techniques is to find someone in that jury panel that you can almost test things out on. And whether it's an engineer to talk about rules and following rules, or in this case, a nurse who happened to be in the labor and delivery. So this was a golden opportunity for me to sort of dive in and test some of the ideas on her about how lengthy delivery it was and whether she'd ever encountered shoulder dystocia, which is getting stuck, and kind of what do you do under those circumstances? And you can get away with it because you want to know how much this potential juror knows about not the facts of your case, but a lot of the circumstances of a similar case. And what do you do? And you have to be confident with what the answers are, which in this case we were because shoulder dystocia is unusual. But certainly, as Erica was saying, the defense is always unpredictable and unpreventable. And that makes it sound like it's rare and impossible to happen. And it's not. And so through this potential juror, 
I asked her, how often do you? And she said, oh, once or twice a year, meaning that it's not rare or impossible or never happens. And how long does it normally last? Oh, a couple of minutes. And in this case, with our client, it lasted five minutes. You know, you can just put yourself in that position. This baby's not breathing for five minutes. And that's why it's this emergency. And that's why you can believe this doctor was yanking like crazy to get this baby out because he knew the consequences of not breathing for five minutes. And he didn't get the baby out. And the second team that came in got the baby out. Right. Yeah, he never did. So, but I was able to use this potential juror, knowing that she would never get picked, to really set out a lot of the case, which I think was very serendipitous. And there were other people with really long labors who had had the same situation, but because they called a C-section and got the baby out. Right. There was no harm. Right. Because our theory was there was multiple opportunities. After our client's mother was admitted to the hospital to have offered a C-section, which would have obviously prevented this entire injury, because if they're not being delivered vaginally, they're not getting stuck. But the defendant doctor had to paint this picture about everything was calm and cool and no big deal. Everything was no big deal including the actual delivery where he's screaming the F word and yanking on the baby's head. No big deal. No big deal. But ultimately, the jury that we ended up with, we had kind of thought we wanted moms because our baby did survive, luckily, but had a real severe brachial plexus injury, which prevents him from using his right arm in any real functional way. There was also the issue with brain damage which you could believe that if the baby hadn't breathed for five minutes and then it took 13 minutes for the baby to breathe. And so there was 13 minutes after he was born of resuscitation. And then he was cooled, which is a modern technique, which thank God, I mean, it is really effective and was able to, at least at this point, our child is three years old, prevent the worst case scenario with the brain injury. Right. So did that labor and delivery nurse actually make it onto the jury? No. No, she's too far back, which was, and I could see Amy doing this. Once we found her, she was way back in the panel. So Amy could kind of go through some of these questions, ask her and, you know, let her educate the jury a little bit. Because everything she was saying, our experts are saying the same. Right. And it lends some credence to you know, the first things that they're going to hear from us. And Amy, you know, confirmed that she couldn't serve on the case because she's too close to the issues, basically. She also knew one of the experts because they had a local OB expert that was her boss. Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. defense attorney tried to, like, rehab her, I think, a little bit. And it's like, mm, one of the experts is her boss. <laughs> like, that Probably won't be happening. going to be a yeah. problem. Yeah. So I did opening. And for any of our very loyal listeners, no, I did not take a drink of my water bottle in between <laughs> in between my first and last name. I took when, it away from her before she started. Yeah. Yeah. I literally had the thought. I'm like, don't touch that water bottle. Don't get anywhere near it. I have to say, and I texted this to all the heels girls right after we finished trying a case with Amy and here I'm going to make you blush was the best trial experience I could have had. She gave me a pep talk every single time I needed it. Every single time I needed to hear something, she found those words and knew they needed to be said. And it was like from the beginning, from like before we got into trial, like prepping over the week from right before the opening, 
I mean, that pep talk, I was like, don't give me goosebumps now. I got to go do something really important. But okay, thank you. Now I feel a little bit more confident about it. Even to what, if you haven't gathered yet, was a very disappointing loss for us. I mean, she was able to take it up and carry the torch with the clients right after that, which was so important for the whole team. But she also said the right thing to me walking into that room was, we got to be strong for the clients right now. Because this, she knew how emotional this case was for everyone involved, which is you can't not do that when you represent kids. You don't have to be a mom to represent kids, but now that I am, like, it's just tough. Like, my kid is like four months older than this little boy. And, you know, it's a strength and a weakness because you use your own personal experience to advocate and get that mama bear trial attorney. I'm going out and representing this family. You use that, but you also have to keep it compartmentalized in your head, which is, you know, a hard thing to do. And it also helps me build such a rapport with the family, which I have and enjoy. And I mean, they were just wonderful. And oh my gosh, the sweet little boy, he has red curly hair. I mean, he met the jury very briefly on the third day of trial because he does have a arm paralysis and he is doing cognitively well. And we really needed the jury to see him not to like say, oh, look at this cute little kid. It didn't hurt. But they need to, you know, put a face to the name instead of just knowing the parents and seeing a couple of pictures of him throughout trial. So Amy, thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. But this was a huge case. It was, yeah. And everything you did pre-trial, trial, before, after, during was excellent. And I don't want you, and I hope I said this at the time, to take away the loss and digest that in a way to believe that it had anything to do with your performance. I know that's hard to believe. It's easy to say, hard to believe. We all beat ourselves up. But you and I tried a case, what, three years ago? It was the MedMal, kind of in a rural county. We had a good time trying that. We lost that case. But nowhere near the level of preparation and skill and just straight up organization and persistence that you showed on this case. So excellent work. And if I failed to say this to Liz on our last podcast, the same is true of the case you and I tried before this one. You know, you had mentioned at the end of that podcast, what a great trial team we have. And I couldn't agree with you more first, starting with your skills and what you bring to the table. So, yes, this is a love fest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's what we do for each other. If you don't have this group, find this group in your life, because I mean, I do walk away from these things and my perspective is longer than anybody else in this room. And part of me believes what I've allowed myself to do over the years is detach a little bit from it, from the emotion of it and from the soaking it all in and feeling it so much. And I joke sometimes that I'm dead inside because, and part of it's true because it's a defense mechanism. It's hard to lose these cases. It's hard to lose these cases for your clients. But what I take away so strongly and so truly is we are good lawyers. And we do a great job, thorough job, dedicated job for our clients. And I sleep well at night, win or lose, because I know that's what we've done. And the clients in both the case that Liz and I had and Erica that you and I had, they know that. Mm -hmm. They know that and they trust that. And that's sometimes 
just what we have to believe. No doubt. Like that case, I am so proud of my work in that case. Yes, ma'am. And I was kind of conditioned to know and to believe in my heart and soul and, you know, professional, ethical work ethic that when I finished, I closed in the case as well. When I finished that close, that is unfortunately, for better or worse, when my job ended in the outcome of that trial. And I feel selfish saying it a little bit now because I am very connected to how that result affects the family. But when I finished that close, that was like my piece. And I knew that I gave it the best shot I could yes. and we did together. And quite frankly, throughout the case, here was the mind screw the whole time is that the evidence came in better than we thought it was going it to. so did. And we kept telling our clients, like every time we would report something good that would happen, then we like repeated like, but we can lose. But, but we we'll had lose. to downplay. But yeah, we had to downplay like everything and try not to get your hopes up because we know the statistics of how often medical malpractice cases are lost in this venue you as well. And, you know, of course, all those things that we had conditioned and told ourselves and told our clients came to roost. But this experience, especially kind of with the fact that we hadn't been in trial for a long time because of COVID, my colleagues, and I'll report on Mary as well, even though she's not here, I'll make her listen to this episode later. You know, you kind of surround yourself with the people that you need to hear from after a loss like that. So Mary and I were texting that morning and I want to share this with you because this is the message that I needed to hear. And I hope that our listeners will bookmark this part in the podcast and come listen to it if you need to hear it after a loss. Mary says, one thing I was thinking about is like, imagine what it feels like if you didn't give it your all. If you can stand up today after the verdict's read and know that you did absolutely everything in your power to win, you have done your job. But you did your job to the absolute best of your ability. And your clients are still worth it. Still worth every hour and second and lack of sleep you endured in preparation. So hearing someone else say that, like I was trying to tell myself that and I knew it like down deep. But, you know, I mean, it was a fresh wound, right? And hearing that from her, I was like, man, are you sure she's younger than me? <laughs> like, it's true. I mean, it really was just wonderful messages coming from, you know, our colleagues here. And Amy, you went on to the trial attorney conference in Missouri that was starting that day we got the verdict. But, you know, you were able to talk to people that night who you were able to share that, hey, we just yeah. lost this big case. It was like going to a party where everyone there had been in your shoes. I think yeah. that's group therapy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> that's very true. And I had to go. I have responsibilities in this organization. And I was kind of like, gosh, I really like go home, go to bed. <laughs> but my husband and I went. And immediately after I got there, because I had missed a meeting that day that the verdict was coming out and didn't get down there until the night. But at the meeting, they'd announced the reason I wasn't there was because we were waiting for our jury. And so everyone... When they saw me, it was like, what happened? What happened? Which is a terrible thing to have to yeah. keep answering. Oh. But of all the people to have to tell that story to and the result, 
I knew that they would understand and literally not judge me or the case because they've all been there. And one of the things you mentioned a minute ago, Erica, about statistics are very difficult for medical malpractice in St. Louis County. And I think they are most counties everywhere. And what had occurred to me when you said that is, you know, that we tell ourselves that we tell our clients that in preparation for what could happen. And the only constant of, let's just say St. Louis County is the jurors, right? You've got different facts, different clients, different lawyers, different judges. The only constant in that statistic is the people who show up to judge your case. And so when you look at a loss rate of 80 to 90%, It's because you can't change the people that are showing up to listen to your case. And I don't know why that makes me feel a little bit less responsible, maybe, but doing your best. What it tells me is it's not us. Mm -hmm. It's not our clients. Because oftentimes we look like, oh, they just didn't like my client or didn't like our expert or they didn't like us. No, the constant in that is they. And it's those jurors. Now, I don't know how that helps, you know, making decisions about picking cases, but it certainly should reinforce the idea that we did our best. Right. And you just can't account for the people that are going to show up that day and listen to your case. I did remind myself that we lost as little as possible. That's Because it was a 9-3 verdict, which meant that three people didn't sign on to the verdict, which the jury needs 9 of 12 in Missouri to render a verdict. And we did pull the jury. I think we talked about this in the last podcast as well. And the three women who didn't sign on to the verdict, and the jury was two-thirds women, like basically shouted no. And I felt great about that. And the one woman who was like grandma age, Man, she was so sweet. She like adamantly said no. And then she looks over at us and the family and she gave us a head nod. Like, and that helps. I think of that head nod when I think about the case. And, you know, it was a long trial. They wanted to get home. We know that. We kept them out for like two and a half hours, maybe. But I do have to tell some stories on myself. Let's (laughs) do it. A couple of things that made uh, that trial, it will always be a highlight. So first of all, Amy Gunn has a terrible reputation of giving you trial dares or exchanging trial dares throughout your case. So our family, in our case, the little boy's name was after a Beatles song. And so I told Amy she had to make a Beatles reference at some point during the trial. That was my dare. Yes, that was her dare. That's what I stayed up worried about at night, by the way. Yes. Not my (laughs) cross-examination of experts, but what on earth was that? How was I going to fit that in? Guys, these cases can be as serious as life and death for some families that you're representing. And if you can keep it a little light and keep your perspective and keep your head by this, I recommend you all do it. So Amy has our neuropsych expert on and she's a doctor in psychology who works with kids. She is fun. She was awesome. She was awesome. She was great. And Part of the defendant's case was that, you know, this kid doesn't need nearly as much help in the future. Look, he's doing pretty good. He's fine. He's fine. But all the evidence shows he's not out of the woods on the fact that he had this really terrible start. So Amy at the very end is saying, should we just let this alone? 
should we just let it be? <laughs> and she sits down. And I don't know if she pre-wrote the post-it or not, but she sits down and I she did. slams a post-it right in front of me. <laughs> it says, let it be. And I sat there and about choked on my tongue because I heard her say it. And I was like, that was real pointed. But I didn't think of the dare. <laughs> and I was you like, you weren't thinking about the dare. You were thinking about other things. Yes, like, Amy. How to put on your cake? And I was literally what? like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that is so much more epic because she slipped it in that easy, <laughs> and I can't even say anything about it right now. It's not even a break. And she's like, hey, remember what I did? <laughs> I was choking. It was wonderful. Um, I did. I wrote because I didn't say, hey, I'm getting ready to you know right. meet you there. <laughs> Pay attention. So I wrote, let it be on a post-it note. And I put it at the last page in my yellow pad. And I guess, was it a redirect? I can't remember when. I knew it was at the end. There's was a lot of drama building. Yeah, because I knew I was going to do it. And I knew it was going to fit because I knew the defense cross was going to be, oh, he's fine. He doesn't need anything, whatever. And so kind of in a snarky way, my question to my own expert was, well, okay, I mean, it sounds like we should just do nothing for this child. We should just let it be. And the witness, of course, had no idea, but she was kind of like, no. Uh, no. <laughs> like, no, we shouldn't. No, do we that. shouldn't. And then I got done, whatever. So I sat back down and then I just flipped over the post it note and you were yeah. like, what? Who's <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Well, and the other triumph that I will never let go of is there was, I think it was their last expert maybe second to last he is a dyed-in-the-wall defense expert he spends his free time that isn't actually doing his medical job testifying against children in these cases and saying oh, that i mean he is so mm. and his job is to say all these children are fine there's nothing wrong with any of these children they don't need any counseling they don't need any care they're fine. Amy, I'm talking about a different expert. Oh. <laughs> they all say it. So that's the takeaway there. They all do this. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we had this one guy, and he literally 15 minutes before his deposition, although they owed us the entire file a full 24 hours before the deposition, he dumped 60 pages of notes on me. So in Missouri, guess what? You can depose any oh, deposition for seven hours. So... I had him sit there in the hotel conference room with the defense attorney for an hour while I reviewed these notes in my time frame. And that was the deposition. This is the deposition. Yeah. And so I took the deposition by Zoom. And so I'm just sitting in my office, like going through these notes because I'm doing the work that we asked that they give them to us beforehand. And I found out during the deposition, the reason I didn't have them is because he was up from midnight to 5 a.m. reviewing the case and making his notes. Oh, I The night before part. the depot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm kind of feeling now I should have crossed him on that. Anyway, so by the time we start that deposition, an hour and 15 minutes after it's supposed to start, he is raging, right? And I've read all of his depositions. I know exactly where I'm going to cross him. I'm saving like 90% of the stuff I know about him for trial on cross. And he is ready to fight. And he fought me that entire deposition, and it lasted like six hours. And usually I don't need to fight with them, like whatever, you know, this isn't going to change my life. But like he wouldn't answer my questions and did that thing where it's like, I don't know what the word 
medical means, you know, like, can you define it for me? No. No. I cannot. Yes. So this guy and I sparred for six hours. This was awesome. And when he shows up at trial, he was there on a break and I went up to him in the hallway and said, hi, Dr. So-and-so. And I power shook his hand and I shook <laughs> his hand, put the other hand over it. And he looked at me and I scared the he was terrified. Crap out of him. He was terrified. So he gets up on the stand and he gives his opinions and it's fine. And literally when I got up there to cross him, I was so excited. I was so excited to cross this guy. I knew I was in front of the jury. I wasn't doing it for myself. I was very careful about how I crossed him. But he, I thought he peed his pants when he I got was up there. so nervous. And it was so satisfying because this guy has just screwed over kids all over the country in the testimony that he gives in these cases. And literally, you just pay him. And if these two facts don't exist in your case, meaning like it's on video right. of the doctor yanking the head or the kid's neck is not broken, then he's got your opinion ready for you. The doctor didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, period. doctor didn't do anything wrong. And the reason is, is because the doctor says he didn't do anything wrong. And doctors are trained in the U.S. to not do anything wrong. And so he probably didn't. I mean, it's crazy. It's guys. awful. I've shared my deposition of this guy with other plaintiff's attorneys who do birth injury work. I've got like three emails about that depot like your patience and persistence is admirable <laughs> and I'm like I don't know if you mean I would have given up and you know cussed that guy out like four hours before <laughs> the depot was over but I think it was along those lines because I will see him again no oh, yeah. doubt no doubt so oh I did I loved it because I looked at the guy because he does have one of those very lengthy 70 plus page mm -hmm. CVs and is a stud in his own mind and probably in his own hospital. And certainly any doctor that's been sued for this negligence involving shoulder dystocia, he's gotten them all off the hook. Not all of them, but a good deal of them off the hook. So he's a hero in that sense. And so he kind of strides in all and then he sees Erica and literally like I mean, he just turns white. <laughs> he, he was like, you beat the crap out of him in his deposition. And then you did, you went up to him and you had your heels on and you stomped up to him and shook his hand. And you could tell he was like, what is going to happen? Great today? to see you. Yeah. He was like, oh God, what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was satisfying. Uh, all right. And then here's the last, I have to tattle on myself for my own naivete. So we're waiting for this verdict. <laughs> and in Missouri, you choose, you know, you find for plaintiff or defendant, and then there's a spot to put your damages, and then it's bifurcated on punitive damages. And the judge was allowing us to submit on punitive damages. And if the jury had said, yes, we believe there's evidence of punitive damages, then I would need to go up and make basically another quick close about what I think they should award for punitive damages. And I've seen it done. In a medical malpractice case that our firm tried a couple of years ago, and I remember the attorney being like pretty flustered when he had to get up and like ask for punitive damages. And I'm like, oh, man, I didn't prepare anything. So the jury's about to like we're waiting for them to walk into the room. And I like whisper over to Amy. I'm like, oh, my gosh. OK, so if there's punitives, I'm going to say this, this and this. Right. Right. Is that what I do? Right. And she kind of looked at me and she's like, mm hmm, that's fine. <laughs> and then literally the jury walks in and we see who the foreman is. And it is just our worst pick yeah. for who we would want as a foreman on the jury. 
And, you know, 30 seconds later here, it's a defense verdict. And I was like, well, that was a confident conversation. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, honey. Yeah. Because they came Bless back pretty quick for yeah. two weeks of trial. Yes. And all the things they had to go through. Because in our world, they the hadn't jury... asked for the life care plan, right. which if they got to damages, they would probably need yeah. to be it looking takes... at some of our documents. They have to so. go through liability and causation and damages. And usually that takes longer than two and a half hours. And yeah. so when they came back then, I was kind of like, oh, yeah. But I loved the enthusiasm and the optimism you know, from you. You that. know, it, so it told me two <laughs> things. One, even though I was telling myself all week, we could lose, we could lose, we could lose. I think I really thought we might win. And that sucked. Yeah. And, <laughs> and two, I don't think I'm ever going to lose that. I, I, I mean, not. I, you know, there is some adverse, not enough, not a ton of adversity that I've overcome, but I don't think it's ever beat me down enough to not have that. You know, I'll always have a little bit of hope. My I glass hope. is half full. That's right. Yeah. You have half to. full. You have to. When you get to that point and you've worked that hard on it, you do believe it. Yeah. And you should believe it up to the very moment when someone tells you not to. <laughs> right. <laughs> shout not to. Nine shout. people shout, yes, that is my verdict. <laughs> Look me in the eye. Right. <laughs> Say to my face, I will. Okay. <laughs> Darn, okay. Oh, man. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I hope you're not listening to this after a loss. But if you are... The resilience that you need to show after the loss of a trial is just another muscle that we have to flex in our profession. So I wish you well. Think about the next one. And thanks for listening. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 